The Joe Robbins series features an Austin-based amateur detective with a head for numbers and a knack for finding trouble. You can buy the full set of four novels on Amazon for $10 plus tax. To find the novels, type the Joe Robbins series into the Amazon search bar. Welcome to the Sheila Stories, which relate the life of an Australian woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm Pat Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, to get us all back up to speed, in the last episode, we heard the story, The Bandstand, in which Sheila met a handsome lawyer from Delaware named Neil Russo. At the end of the story, Sheila shared a kiss with Neil on the bandstand in downtown Cape May. In today's episode, we will hear the story 10%, in which Sheila will return to Queensland and the farm she purchased in the very first story, which was titled On to Toowoomba. Once there, Sheila will be reunited with her old friends Tom and Hannah and their children. Ten percent. Sheila hiked through the fat snowflakes of a mid-December storm. She wore a thick coat and solid boots. The air was crisp and clean and quiet. She passed no cars or pedestrians on the way to Joey's Bar on Washington Street. She tapped her boots against the doorstep to remove the snow and stepped into the warmth. Dot Flagg and Tony Santucci sat on bar stools in the semi-dark room. Joey's was one of the few bars that stayed open through the winter and was the favorite watering hole of the year-rounders. Two men played darts in a corner. Three women sat at a table with a bottle of wine. From behind the bar, Ralph asked what she wanted, and she ordered a beer. Dot had aged in the dozen years Sheila had known her had become a little rounder and gotten some gray in her hair. Tony looked the same, lean, wrinkled, and gruff. Dot was drinking a Bloody Mary. Tony sipped a Coke, undoubtedly spiked with rum. After brief greetings, Dot got right to the point. So you won't open for the holidays, not at all? No, said Sheila. We're going to Australia for three weeks. My parents are getting on in age and not as strong as they used to be. But that wasn't the only reason. She hadn't visited Sydney since she married Neil, more than five years earlier. Her parents had never met Neil, or the twins, who were now 14. Sheila wanted to show the twins the sights of Sydney. Manly Beach, the Harbour Bridge, Circular Quay, and a dozen other places. She also wanted to see Tom and Hazel and their boys and their grandchildren. She wanted to go to Darling Downs to smell the air, to feel the wool on a sheep's back, and ride a horse across the cattle station. She missed Australia. They had the money and the time, and Neil had instantly agreed. Tony nodded noncommittally. Long way to go, she said. About two days of flying, counting the layovers. But I first came to America on a ship. That took three weeks. You want us to keep an eye on your place, said Dot. I'd be grateful. I brought a key. Tony took it. 
I'll make sure no varmints get in. We'll miss you, said Dot, her shoulders drooping. You make the winter seem a little warmer. I'll return in April to get the house ready for spring. Dot sniffled and pulled a tissue from her purse. Tony put an arm around Dot's shoulder. Let's not get maudlin. You two up for a game of darts? Always, said Sheila. Dot blew her nose and glanced at the dartboard. The tall man retrieved the darts while the short man sipped his beer. We can take those turkeys, she said. Tony turned to the men. Hey, Gene, Charlie, how about a friendly game? The tall man, Gene, said, We'll play you and Dot, but don't bring that Aussie over here. Last time she damn near took my shirt. I was lucky, said Sheila. Lucky nothing, said Charlie in a good-natured tone. You're a ringer. Tony strolled toward the men, his hands outstretched as if appealing to their forgotten manhood. Now, guys, couple of girls, don't be sissies. I'll tell you what, we'll rotate the women. Sheila only gets to play every other turn. Gene shook his head. We'll give you two-to-one odds, said Sheila. Tony frowned at her as if she'd given away too much. Charlie grinned. What stakes? A dollar game, said Sheila. Fifty cents, said Jean. I can't lose all my beer money. Ralph would be pissed. The six of them strolled into the pasture. It had changed little since she bought it in 1935. A hundred sheep grazed on the hillside. The summer breeze carried the sweet honey fragrance of jacaranda blooms. Tom and Hazel had both passed sixty and had gray in their hair, but they stood straight and moved with ease around the farm. David was married with kids and lived in Sheila's old house. John remained single and stayed with his parents when on the property. And Maisie had moved away to attend university and never moved back. John kept an apartment in Brisbane, where he spent much of his time dealing with traders and bankers and property agents. He had grown fond of music and the arts. David teased him about it, called him a city boy. The two men were clearly brothers, with similar facial features and gestures, but John was taller and David stronger. They wore the same attire, jeans, denim shirts, and work boots. David's boots were worn in, and John's like new. After lunch, Sheila had suggested they take a walk. Down near the cluster of shrub trees, David's two boys, nearly full-grown now, were teaching Neil's twin daughters, Linda and Sandra, to ride horses. The boys had chosen even-tempered mounts for the girls, and the four of them rode in a single file toward the creek. Over the past three days, Tom and the boys had taken her, Neil, and the twins on a tour of all the properties. They had expanded the total holdings to four times the size of what Sheila owned when she left in 1941. Most of the growth was from acquired cattle grazing lands in the West. Indigenous peoples still lacked the right to vote in Queensland, and for two decades they had maintained the ruse that Tom's family only worked on the farms, when in fact, legally, Sheila and Tom each owned 50%. Thank you for lunch, Neil said to Hazel. It was delicious, she smiled. Have you eaten much mutton? No, but I loved how the onions and garlic flavored the meat. Would you share the recipe? Of course. 
Tom strolled next to Sheila, but had said nothing since they left the house. He wore an expression she recognized. What's on your mind? she said, loud enough for everyone to hear. He shrugged. Nothing. Just enjoying your company on a gorgeous day. Don't do that, she said. We've known each other for too long. He stopped, and his eyes traveled to the edge of the farm. They scanned the perimeter like they had a thousand times, traveled down to the creek, and passed where the children rode horses. How did we do? he asked. We've shown you everything, what we've tried to accomplish with your business. Our business, she said. He nodded. You started it. And you built it, she said. I'm proud and grateful. He stood tall and lifted his chin. She'd been mulling something over for months. She had a proposal to make, and now seemed like the right time. I want you to buy me out, Tom. Hazel took a sharp breath. Tom's hands came together in front of his waist. His eyebrows fell, and he gently shook his head. Your family built this place, she said. It's yours. Even if you don't own all of it, in spirit it's yours. You'll keep working it and keep growing it, and the rewards should go to you. Hazel's eyes clouded with doubt. My place is in the U.S. with Neil and the twins, said Sheila. I'll never live here again. Linda and Sandra will grow up, and one day I hope we'll have grandchildren. Neil and I have plenty of money to care for our family. Let's work out a fair price, not too high, and a payment schedule like before. I don't like it said David. It's not right. I'd be dead of a snake bite without you. But she said, if I hadn't bought the dairy farm, the snake would have never gotten the chance to bite you. John opened his mouth, but Tom cut him off. Hold on, son. Let's not answer now. Sheila swallowed, her heart pounding. She had owned the land she stood on for 27 years, but this was the right decision. Tom's honest bearing hadn't changed one iota since the day she'd met him in front of the Hotel Victoria. He gave her a quick nod. Like all of our big decisions, he said, we'll debate this in a family meeting. Fair enough, she said. Two days later, David and John took her on a long ride in one of the trucks, their destination a secret. They rode west, passed Tara and the gums, and turned right. A two-lane road with painted lines had replaced the dirt track, but she recognized the trees on the edge of the valley. David turned left on a driveway and meandered toward the ridge. Her breath came faster. They were close to a place where she had almost drowned, near to a dream that had never come true. They approached the stand of gum trees and a structure came into view, a new house. The house was two stories and painted a pale yellow with white shutters. Freshly planted flowers bordered the porch. They even had rocking chairs. It's beautiful, she said, her breath short. We've been building it for six months, said David. It's nearly finished. I'll live here with my family. We built a suite on the left with a separate entrance for John. It didn't seem possible. The house appeared precisely as she had pictured it. She and Colin would have raised their family in this house on this very spot. The yellow was the same shade she had imagined. How could that be? 
Had she described it to David and John back then? We know you used to come here, said John. We thought this would make a good spot for a homestead. The cattle farms represent well over half of our revenue. It makes sense to live out here. John carried on for another minute, but she paid no attention. She could not take her eyes off the house. It was perfect except for one detail. She pointed to the big rusty gum tree. You should hang a rope swing there, she said. David nodded. She had imagined a rich lawn running right to the ridge of the valley. She would have placed a white wicker table and chairs near the edge. Colin loved lemonade. She would have carried a pitcher to the table so they could sit and enjoy the view. At the bottom of the valley, the creek was dry. The walls were brownish-red like she remembered. Wispy trees clung to the slopes. John said, We've discussed your proposal. We will buy you out, but only down to 10%. We want our families to remain close forever. Dark clouds gathered over the hills in the distance. A breeze smelling of rain mussed her hair. Was he here? Was Colin here now? That sounds perfect, she said. We have a favor to ask, said John. She turned toward the two men. It has to do with my children, said David. They're good in school, smart like their mother and their uncle. We want them to go to university. John picked up the discussion. We want them to see the world, not just Australia. They will attend university in the U.S., most likely on the East Coast. Can you be their family there? Can they stay with you on holidays? David and John were sturdy men, tall, smart, and hardworking. She had known them for most of their lives. Born poor, they had worked and learned and created, and now they were wealthy. And like all such people, they wanted the best for their children. Yes, she said. Oh, yes. I want to be part of the family. Okay, that's the end of the story 10%, and we've covered a lot of ground. Now, this is a reunion story. We go all the way back to the beginning, when Sheila was 18 and riding a train from Brisbane to Toowoomba with the intention of buying a sheep farm. Do you remember that story? Sure you do. Well, Sheila has come a long way. In that first story, Sheila was 18, and the year was 1935. Now it's 27 years later, 1962. Sheila is now 45 years old and married to Neil Russo. What I'd like to focus on a little bit is the last scene of the story. A mystical element has crept into this story that we've only encountered once or twice before. First, the house that David and John have built on the bluff overlooking the valley. Sheila is stunned when she sees this house because it looks almost exactly as the house she imagined she and Colin would have built together had they both survived the war. She doesn't remember ever talking to David and John about her dream for this house, yet here it is, the house they've built for their family. And then there is a moment when she is standing next to the cliff overlooking the valley when she senses Colin's presence. The land was always so much a part of him, and he a part of it, 
that she believes and feels that he is actually there with her. It is a strange and in some ways comforting notion. In the next episode, we will again jump forward in time. In the story Unfamiliar Field, which takes place in 1969, Sheila and Neil will have a debate with their daughter Sandra about the protest against the war in Vietnam. Now I'd like to take a moment to promote my writing, if I may. The Joe Robbins series features an Austin-based amateur detective with a head for numbers and a knack for finding trouble. You can buy the full set of four novels on Amazon for $10 plus tax. In the first Joe Robbins novel, which is titled The Entrepreneurs, a finance executive must catch a killer or be killed. Amateur boxer-turned-executive Joe Robbins moves his family to Austin, Texas to join a startup and get rich. At his first company party, Joe witnesses a young woman commit suicide. She leaves no note, no motive, and the image haunts his dreams. But the company is busy writing software and making sales, and everyone is going to get rich. Employees careen around Austin like bats. When the market crashes, the company falls apart and the paper riches evaporate. Then a director is found murdered and the police figure Joe for a prime suspect. Two more executives are murdered and Joe might be next. Forced into the role of an amateur detective, Joe falls back on what he knows best. Facts, logic, and analysis. If the going gets rough, he'll use his fists. Whatever the approach, he'd better work fast because he's facing a long stay at the big house or a short trip to the morgue. One reviewer had this to say about the entrepreneurs. Fast-paced and engaging, particularly the ever-changing cat-and-mouse games at the story's peak. To find the entrepreneurs, go to Amazon and type the Joe Robbins series into the search bar. That's Robbins with two Bs. The Entrepreneurs is available for 99 cents. This low price is to get you hooked on Joe Robbins. Don't forget, you can buy the full series of four novels for $10 plus tax. On today's episode, we had music by Cinemedia and sound effects by Zapsplat.com. Thank you, friends. I'll be back soon. Bye now.